Well, let's turn to John's Gospel. John chapter 3 and verse 16 through to verse 21. And then we're going to go over a couple of chapters into chapter 5 and verse 19. So John chapter 3, verse 16, this is God's word to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And the people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come to the light. Lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Then come over with me to to John chapter 5 and verse 19 through to verse 24. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Amen.
so sweet to be able to sing together. It's like nectar for our souls, isn't it? As we sing good lyrics, biblical lyrics that bless us, the truth of scripture, just pouring out of wonderful songs. Thank you for singing, singing along with us here this evening. Well, we're hungry for the word. So let's come before the Lord in prayer before Stafford comes and opens it to us. Let's pray together. Our trying God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Hebrews 4, you tell us that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Abba Father, do a great work in our hearts tonight to penetrate through the power of your Holy Spirit into the deepest caves of our hearts, expose our sin, drive us deeper into knowledge and relationship with you, and then fill the caves of our heart with the treasure of who you are and what you have done. And as we approach your word, we Ask for help for your servant Stafford. Fill him with your power. Give him boldness to proclaim the truth. Give him every help. And give him gentleness that cares for souls. Bless him and bless us now. In Jesus' strong name. Amen. Amen. Stafford. Thanks so much, John. <clears throat> Can I say a big word of thanks to all of you? You've been extraordinary extraordinarily generous uh, to me in terms of your encouragement and your remarks and I really do appreciate that um, I, I think I'm suffering from some kind of long COVID um, spiritual deprivation uh, because you know I've really felt out of it I'll maybe talk more about this tomorrow really felt out of it in terms of worship and fellowship and everything else um, and I don't know that the, the COVID lockdown has been good for me spiritually. I think I'm still in a process of recovery. So it's just been marvellous to be with you this weekend and to talk with you and to, to fellowship with you. And it's just lovely uh, to be with kindred spirits. I'm, um, I'm probably 10 or 20 years older than most of you, but, uh, <laughs> you know, um, I'm the mind of a... 18-year-old trapped in the body of a 70-year-old, and um, uh, I'm just enjoying the company and the fellowship so much. So thanks so very much indeed for your fellowship. Um, I'm going to talk this evening uh, just about the love of God and try to explore a little bit uh, of what John's Gospel has to say about the love of God. And my message to my 25-year-old self is this. Understand deeply and profoundly how much God loves you. And allow that to be a source of reassurance and joy in your life. Let me begin, I guess, a number of years ago, there's a little book published. Maybe some of you have read it or seen it. Children's Thoughts on Love. Uh, some of the contributions are quite hilarious. Uh, Zoe, aged eight, says, 
I love my teacher because she gives me a good education. That's education spelt E-J-U-K-A-S-H-U-N. Or Norman, age seven. Babies need to be loved by their mothers in case everyone hates them when they grow up. There's a Freudian psychologist in the making, if ever there was one. Jean, age seven, some of them are a bit more poignant. Jean, age seven, says, my daddy went away and we have to keep remembering to love him. Or Anne, aged eight, said, my mummy and daddy are in love most of the time. But when I go to bed, they shout a lot. Or David, age seven, says, mummy says that daddy does love me, but he's very busy at work. Or the most poignant of all, I think, is Paul, age seven. I love my mother because I have a photograph of her and she sends me presents. I, I don't know how you felt this week. My heart was absolutely torn by the story of the, the wee lad who was murdered by his father and stepmother. Uh, just couldn't believe it. Crying out, will nobody feed me? Does nobody love me? Love is such a rare commodity in our world, not only for children, but for many adults as well. And because of that, it can be very hard to understand what real love is, and very hard sometimes for people to believe in love. And for that reason, it's increasingly hard for people to believe in a God who is love. John as an apostle and as a writer, is known as the apostle of love. He has a lot to say about the love of God. In fact, he's often referred to as the beloved disciple. He's the one who's closest to Jesus. He's the one who knows the love of Jesus. He leans on Jesus' breast. And in fact, it's John who in his first epistle uh, gives us that sentence which has dominated people's thinking about God. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. And when John says that God is love, he's seeking to make an objectively true statement about the character of the personal creator, the God of the Bible. Love is, according to John, an indispensable condition of all our theology. If it's going to be valid, if it's going to be practical, then here's something we need to understand. God is love. One of the most tremendous statements in the Bible. And yet one of the most misunderstood because false and heretical ideas have grown up around the idea that God is love and its real meaning has been obscured and hidden. So it is, as Jim Packer says, no small task to cut through the tangle of mental undergrowth and uncover its true meaning. Love is God's innermost being and nature. It's not simply that he has love. It's not simply that he exercises love. Love is the very form and nature of God so that he stands out as a person who loves and who seeks fellowship and seeks friendship with others. Love 
for the God of the Bible is not just one activity among others. Love defines who he is. It's a love that cannot be contained even within the joy and fellowship of the Father, Son and Spirit. But it's a love that has spilled out to create and to embrace finite and fallen creatures like us and to include us within his love. So even when we don't feel it, even when we think we don't deserve it, God still embraces us with his overflowing and copious love. And folks, just I'm saying this to myself, nothing is more important for us to know than to know the simple fact that God loves us. We are tiny, lonely specks who dwell in an almost infinite universe. In terms of the whole cosmos, human beings are quantitatively very insignificant. We're small. We're under threat, both individually and as a race, by the march of history and by the the plague of our world. And yet, into our deep sense of insecurity, our sense of lacking identity, there shines this truth of the love of God. We matter to God. We matter immensely to God. And it is this truth about the love of God for us that actually lightens our darkness, that redeems our lives from the threat of meaninglessness. It causes our hearts to sing love divine. All loves excelling joy of heaven to earth come down. We can be genuinely joyful. We can celebrate. We can march out of Castlewell and Castle this weekend uh, with a spring in our step. Because we know again God loves us. And the love which God shows to us and which Christians know and rejoice in is a revelation of his own inner being. So when we say God is love, it takes us deep into the nature and the character of God himself. So I've been reading Dean Ortland's wee book, Deeper, recently, and he helpfully points out that the love of God is not something to see once and believe, and then to move on to other truths or other strategies that we might use for growing in Christ and for developing in our Christian discipleship. Uh, Dean Ortland says the love of God is what we feed on our whole lives long, wading ever more deeply into this endless ocean. And that feeding, that wading, is itself what fosters growth. That we grow in Christ as we understand and as we enjoy his loving embrace of us. Here's what John Owen, the great English Puritan, said about the importance of knowing and delighting in the love of God. He says, so much as we see of the love of God, so much shall we delight in him and no more. Every other discovery of God without this will but make the soul fly from him. But if the heart be once much taken up with the eminency of the Father's love, it cannot choose but be overpowered, conquered, 
and endeared unto him. If the love of a father will not make a child delight in him, what will? So I have the privilege of being a father and a grandfather. I can't begin to tell you the depth of my feelings for my children and my grandchildren. I love to hold them. I love to be with them. I love to tell them how much I love them. And my frustration is that I can't always express adequately to them the terms and the immensity of my love for them. But if that is how a sinful earthly father like me feels about my children and my grandchildren, what must God's love be like? He is perfect, he is holy, he is ineffable in his love for us. And just as I would be so hurt and so offended if my children didn't respond to my love for them, so God's heart is broken and hurt when we don't respond to his love for us. And just as my heart sings and leaps and melts when my children run to hug me, so God's heart rejoices when we run to him and are enveloped in his love for us. So John here in his gospel, he gives us the framework. He gives us the context for understanding this topic of the love of God. Really three aspects. Let me use them just to work our way through this briefly this evening. Three aspects of the love of God revealed to us in John's gospel. First of all, there's the father's love for the son and the son's love for the father. Then there's God's love for the world. And then there's Christ's love for his people. So I'm going to try and unpack those one by one. First of all, the love that exists between members of the Trinity. You want to get the right expression. It's an intra-Trinitarian love. And, and it's those verses from John 5, verses 19 and 20, that really show that. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For... The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And that little section of John's Gospel describes that close relationship that exists between the Father and the Son. Christ does not act and Christ cannot act independently of his Father. He can only do the things he sees the Father doing. So there is this ongoing contemplation of the Father by the Son, which is really what Leon Morris calls an uninterrupted communion. And it's underpinned by a deep love of the one for the other. The Father loves the Son, says Jesus. And the tense of the verb there denotes a continuing habitual love. The Father never ceases to love the Son. The Father shows the Son all he's doing. And again, it's a present continuous tense denoting this ongoing, this sustained action. And on that basis, Jesus not only acts in accordance with the divine revelation, but he looks forward to doing even greater works. Uh, we have a sense of the nature of that love that exists within the fellowship of the eternal trinity in chapter 1. 
You remember in the beginning, there was not only God, but God with God. The word was with God. And we might literally translate that as the word was towards God. There was an outgoing of affection and glory between the Father and the Son and between the Son and the Spirit. So the Father and the Son are not so distinct that they're two separate beings, but they are so distinct that the one is the object of the other's love. To each the other is beloved. And this eternal love embraces the Son even after the incarnation. The Son of God becomes a human person. He enters our world of frailty and poverty and dependence. But his identity remains as before. The child in the manger is the Lord of all. And at two significant points, his sonship and the Father's love for him is affirmed at his baptism. The Father speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then again at his transfiguration, a voice again comes out of the cloud and says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And God the Father comforts Christ by flooding his consciousness with the assurance that he is uniquely and wonderfully loved. And the son fully reciprocates the father's love. 1 John 14, verse 31. Jesus affirms his delight to do his father's will. I do as the father has commanded me. So, why? So that the world may know that I love the father. John 14, 31 is the one place in the New Testament in which Jesus' love for the Father is explicitly mentioned. Uh, there are, of course, many passages where the love of the Father for the Son is referred to, and the love of the Son is implied everywhere, but that's the one place where it's mentioned explicitly. It's no wonder John picks up on it. Verse 28 of chapter 14, Jesus contemplates the prospect of returning to be with his Father, and that fills him with such huge delight. All the glory that he seeks is to be with the Father. And he looks forward to that day when every enemy will have been subdued. Every son and daughter will have been brought home into the kingdom. And then he'll gladly surrender the kingdom to the Father so that he may be all in all. So there's this wonderful love and affection that exists between Father, Son and Spirit. But this love that exists between members of the Trinity spills over into the world that God has made. So that's my second point. Not only is there a love, an intra-Trinitarian love, but there is then God's love for the world. And that's expressed most clearly in the best known verse in John's Gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For Nicodemus, who heard those words, this was so surprising, so astounding, totally mind-blowing. Put this verse in the context of the Old Testament and the other Jewish writings, it's almost unbelievable. Because the Old Testament had spoken of God's love for his people, Israel. But now, surprise, surprise, Nicodemus, God's love for the world makes it possible that whoever believes in Christ, not Jews alone, but whoever believes may have eternal life. And notice what John 3.16 says, God so loved the world of all the things to love. 
He loved this world. And what's in view here is not so much the quantity of that which God loves, but the quality of that which he loves. It's not so much the universality, it's not so much the extent of God's love, as the worldliness, the sin and the corruption of that which he loves. So we teach our children wide, wide as the ocean, high as the heavens above, deep, deep as the deepest sea is my Saviour's love. So high you can't get over it, so low you can't get under it. And all of that's true as we uh, express the extent of God's love. But John's point here is that we need to consider the nature of the world that God opens his arms to embrace. He embraces sinners like us. Uh, Remember that when John uses the term world, he has a number of thoughts in mind. It it can refer to the planet and its people. John 1.10 says the world was made through him. He says Christ is the light of the world. But more frequently when he uses that phrase or that term world, John is referring to the world as that which is opposed to Christ. The world says Jesus hates him. The world rejoices when Christ's disciples are weeping and lamenting, he says in chapter 16. Satan is described as the prince of this world. So there is this hostility, there is this blindness about the world. And when the word came into the world which he had made, the world, John 1.10, the world knew him not. It does not know the Father. And it does not know or receive the Spirit, says John. So as far as the Bible sees it, the world is something from which believers must separate. They shouldn't be conformed to the world. They should overcome the world. And from one point of view, Christians are explicitly told not to love the world. So B.B. Warfield says that the world is a synonym for all that's evil and for all that's disgusting. There's nothing in it that can attract or that can justify God's love. Yet here is this amazing truth. God so loved of all things. He so loved the world. He loved it in spite of the fact that it was dominated by the flesh and the devil. In spite of the fact that it's composed of those who are his enemies, organized specifically in opposition to his will. God's love extends and embraces this world in all its degradation and in all its sin. So Don Carson says, God's love is to be admired, not because the world is so big and includes so many people, but because the world is so bad. And as a corrupt, deceitful, unlovely, inconsistent sinner that love reaches me that thrills me and excites me and moves me because if we saw ourselves as nice lovely lovable people then it would limit and restrict how loved we feel we are we would say well of course God loves me he ought to I'm so nice I'm so lovable that's how some people think And while they may feel loved to a degree, they're not astonished, they're not amazed at God's love for them or at how loved they are. 
It's only when you know that your life is a total mess. That it's full of mistakes, full of sins, full of idols, full of corruptions that have all displaced God. That God's love for you takes on a whole new dimension. For it is, as Dean Orton says, our messiness that makes God's love so surprising, so startling, so arresting, and thereby so transforming. In one of his sermons, Jonathan Edwards reflects on the surprising nature of God's love. They that find Christ discover that he be so glorious and excellent a person, yet they find him ready to receive such poor, worthless, hateful creatures as they are, which was unexpected to them. They're surprised with it. They did not imagine that Christ was such a kind of person, a person of such grace. They heard he was a holy saviour and hated sin, And they did not imagine that he would be so ready to receive such vile, wicked creatures as they. They thought that he surely would never be willing to accept them as provoking sinners, such guilty wretches, those that had such abominable hearts. But behold, he's not a whit the more backward to receive them for that. They unexpectedly find him with open arms to embrace them, ready to forget all their sins as though they had never been. They thought that he, as it were, runs to meet them, makes them most welcome, admits them not only to be his servants, but his friends. He lifts them out of the dust. He sets them on his throne. He makes them the children of God. He speaks peace to them. He cheers and refreshes their hearts. He admits them into strict union with himself and gives them the most joyful entertainments and binds himself to them. To be their friend forever. So they are surprised with their entertainment. They never imagined to find Christ a person of such kind love and grace as this. It is beyond all imagination and conception. Great words of Edwards. If you're feeling that you're unworthy. If you're ever feeling that you're unlovely or unlovable. Think again. Allow yourself to be amazed at how wonderfully and freely God embraces you and loves you. For God so loved the world. And that includes you and that includes me in all our sin, in all our darkness and in all our unloveliness. Jim Packer actually takes it a little bit further. He says that when John says God is love or that God so loved the world, we need to remember that so far as the Bible is concerned, that is not the complete truth about God. God is love is not an abstract definition which stands alone, but it's a summing up from the Christian standpoint of what the whole revelation of God in Scripture tells us about its author. But John presupposes all the rest of the biblical witness to God. The God who is love is the God who made the world. He's the God who judges the world in the flood. He's the God who called Abraham and made out of him a nation. He's the God who chastened the Old Testament people through their captivity and exile. He's the God who sent his son to save the world and who will one day judge the world in righteousness. It is this 
God, says John, who so loved the world. So it's wrong and perverse, as some people do, to quote John and then to call into question what the Bible says about the reality of God's justice and judgment. We can't argue that a God who is love cannot also be a God who condemns and punishes the disobedient. For it's precisely of the God who does these very things that John is speaking. And if we're not to misunderstand John's statement about the love of God, we have to view it in the light of other, two other great statements that we have in John, both of them spoken directly by Christ. In the very next chapter, chapter 4, Jesus speaks to a Samaritan woman. They're discussing the question of where was the right place to worship God or if God was confined to one geographical location. And Jesus says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. God has no body. He's free from all the limitations of time and natural processes. And he remains eternally the same. So the love of God who is spirit is no fitful, fluctuating thing the way human love is. It's not some kind of impotent longing for things that may never be or may never come to pass. Rather, it's an attitude of benevolence and benefaction, an attitude that is freely chosen, an attitude that's firmly fixed. There's nothing variable. There's nothing inconsistent in the love of God. It is, as the Song of Solomon says, as strong as death, so that many waters cannot quench it. And once embraced by it, nothing can separate us from it, as Romans 8 makes so clear. And this God who is love and who is spirit is also light. He is light and in him there's no darkness at all, as John says in 1 John 1.8. Light means holiness, purity. Darkness means sin, perversity, unrighteousness. So the God who is light, the God who loves the world, the God who is light and spirit loves the world and he is first and foremost light as well. So sentimental ideas about his love being an indulgent or a benevolent softness, divorced from moral standards, divorced from his holiness, have to be ruled out. God's love is a holy love. The God who is revealed to us by Jesus Christ is not a God who's indifferent to issues of morality, as many people seem to think. He's a God who loves righteousness, who hates iniquity. And the Bible will not allow us to suppose That because God loves the world, we may look to him to confer happiness on people who will not seek his holiness. In fact, this discipline of his children is precisely because he loves them. Hebrews 12, 6, the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves. He chastens every son whom he receives and God seeks holiness in those whom he loves. So we need to remember that so far as the Bible is concerned, God is love is not the whole truth about God. He's also spirit. He's also light. But the balancing truth, Jim Packer says, is this. So far as the Christian is concerned, God is love is the complete truth about God. God's love finds expression in everything he says and does. The fact that this is so for us personally is our supreme comfort and our supreme assurance. The promise of the scriptures is that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God 
and who are called according to his purpose. Not just some things, but all things. So think about it tonight. Every single thing that happens to us expresses God's love for us and furthers and advances God's purpose for us. We need to understand that as far as God is concerned, God shows his holy, omnipotent love in every moment and in every event of our lives. And when we can't see it and when we're confused and unclear about what's going on, we know that back of it all is God's love. When humanly speaking, things seem to go terribly wrong, we can relax in the knowledge that God is still working out his sovereign and loving purpose for us. Am I speaking to somebody tonight and you really need to hear that? That you're in a particular situation at the minute that's causing you distress and you're wondering what on earth is happening in my life? Why are you bringing me into this situation? Why am I going through this? Can you believe that even in the midst of what seems to be a mess and what seems to be hurtful and painful, God's loving purposes for you are still being worked out? Times in my life and ministry I've wondered, Lord, why do you bring me here? Lord, why are you doing this? Why am I having to face this set of circumstances? And I need constantly to take recourse to this simple truth. Lord, you love me. Lord, you're at work in my life. And all of your loving purposes will be fulfilled in me. Because you're the God who loves me immensely. That really leads me to this final point. Not only is there this wonderful love that exists within the Trinity, not only is this wonderful love that extends out into the world, but there is this special and focused love that God has for his people. And again, this is so clear in John's Gospel. It's clear from John 3.16 that the love of God is for all men and all women. But the blessing of salvation comes, as we know, only to those who believe in Christ. God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And Thomas Boston said that it's crucial that we make that distinction between Christ being offered and Christ being possessed. Another Scottish divine wrote, Beware of confounding promises and invitations. Two very distinct things addressed to two different classes. The invitations are to sinners, but the promises are to the saints. Now that's not to make grace conditional, but it's to remind ourselves that not all to whom God's love and salvation are offered are actually saved. There's an indispensable human response to the offer of the gospel. God calls for repentance and faith. So the offer of God's love and the author, offer of God's salvation is made to all people, made to the unbelieving, made to the impenitent, but the actual promise of salvation is confined to those who believe. And that's made plain there in John 3.16 with both the universalism of the offer and the particularism of the promise. The world is loved, but only those who believe have eternal life. The good news of the gospel is not that all people everywhere are saved, some kind of universalism, but that if they come to Christ, they will be saved. Every person, sinner, ungodly, hypocrite, backslider, 
is to be invited, they're to be pleaded with, but only those who receive and rest on Christ will be given the comfort that your sins are forgiven. And to evoke that response, we may tell them that Christ loves them so much that he offers to be their saviour. He pleads with them to turn to him, but they must come. And if the love is spurned, they are lost. Indeed, the very gravity of unbelief in the face of the gospel offer is precisely that it is a rejection of so great a love and the rejection of so great a saviour. But with Christ's own people. Christ works in their hearts in order to create the response that he commands. He opens their hearts and he unites them to Christ. Here it is in John's Gospel, chapter 6, two verses. Make that point. Chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So the crowd had witnessed Christ at work. They've just seen this miraculous sign of the feeding of the 5,000. But they've seen only the bread. They've seen only the power of the miracle. Not what they signify. But in spite of the fact that they have witnessed the divine revealer at work, their faith has not been apparent. Their curiosity, their appetites, their desire for political power have all been aroused, but they still have not come to believe and trust in Christ. Does that mean that Christ's mission is a failure? Has God failed to achieve what he set out to do through sending his son into the world? The answer is given here. However many people do not believe God's sovereign and saving purposes will not be frustrated. And Jesus' confidence does not rest in the potential for positive responses amongst well-meaning people. Far from it. His confidence is in his Father to bring to pass his redemptive purposes. So here is God's wonderful electing love for his people. A total unqualified commitment to them. He not only sends out the invitation of the gospel to them. He not only pleads with them. He's not content, content merely to weep over them. But he creates in them the response which he commands. Yes, God loves the world. But there's another large company of people drawn from every tribe and tongue and color and nature nation whom he loves with a special and a unique love and he has not only made their salvation possible and available but he specifically and actually saves them and without that sovereign saving action of God no one would be saved John 6 verse 65 no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father so God's sovereignty and salvation is a major theme of John's gospel. It's, a clear, it's clear that there exists a group of people who have been given by the Father to the Son and that this group will inevitably come to the Son and will be preserved by him. If you read the great high priestly prayer of John 17, it keeps repeating the phrase Jesus talks about those whom you gave me. Verse 6, verse 9, verse 24 of John 17. And then there is this key passage at the beginning of chapter 13 
which we refer to as the upper room or the farewell discourse, where John, with characteristic precision, records the time he affirms and underscores the special love of Christ for his own. Before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The wonderful, beautiful, sustaining, victorious love of God. He loves his people completely and perfectly so that their salvation is guaranteed. He loves them to the end. C.H. Uh, Dodd points out how the Johannine vocabulary changes from that point, the beginning of chapter 13. Uh, the earlier part of the gospel is marked by the use of words like life 50 times in chapters 1 to 12, words like light 32 times in chapters 1 to 12. The word love is only found six times in the first 12 chapters, but it appears 31 times in chapters 13 to 17. So the theme of love takes on a new prominence in the second half of the gospel. It's a love which is focused on Christ's own disciples, his own people. He loves them to the end. And we shouldn't be surprised at that because it's focusing our thoughts on the pain and the anguish and the suffering and the passion of the cross and the crucifixion. It was a suffering, sacrificial love. He gives himself for them. God so loved the world, what did he do? He gave his one and only son. The supreme evidence of the love of God is the giving of his son to death on the cross. Paul says in Galatians, the son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Think about it for a moment. From the perspective of the disciples, the death of Christ on Calvary appeared to be a complete disaster. Things seemed to have gone terribly and horribly wrong. How on earth could it ever have been God's will and purpose for his son to die on the cross? You could imagine John and Peter and the other disciples standing around the cross and crying out, Jesus, please come down. This is not the way it was meant to end. Peter had actually said that a few days previously at Caesarea Philippi. Jesus had begun to explain to his disciples, he's got to go to Jerusalem, he's got to suffer many things, he's going to be killed. And you remember how Peter took him aside and said, Lord, you've got it wrong. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. However tragic and unspeakable the death of Christ was from a human perspective, it's the most wonderful and the most outstanding evidence of God's love for us. A love which spares no cost. He gives his one and only son. He did not spare his own son, says Paul in Romans 8, but he gave him up. For us all. The father offers his son for the sins of the world. Complex and profound truth. God, the father, gives Christ to be the church's head and the world's saviour. He prepares a body for him in which he might bear our sins. He sends him into the world. He delivers him up to Judas, to the Jews and to Pilate. But the process doesn't stop there. Behind all the horror of Calvary, 
there is the agency of God. He lays on his son, as Isaiah prophesied, the iniquity of us all. He makes him an offering for sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He condemns sin in the flesh. He does not spare him. He doesn't allow the uniqueness of his status nor the promptings of his own love to modify or to mitigate the pain of the cross. He's given over unreservedly to all that our sin deserved. What costly love it was. Imagine how Abraham felt as he brought his only son Isaac whom he loved to the altar and what a relief it must have been for him to hear the voice from heaven don't lay your hand on the lad. Or imagine the heartbreak of David as he cried out Absalom my son, my son would I have died instead of you my son, my son. And the love of these fathers for their sons was but a faint reflection of God's love for his son. But in the darkness of the hill of Calvary, there's no voice to intervene. There's no voice to say, don't lay a hand on the lad. Without reluctance and at great cost, God gives his son for us. Jesus submits to it all voluntarily. He set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem and Calvary and having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them right to the end. He was eager to fulfill his calling and mission. He says in Luke 12, I have a baptism to be baptized with. How great is my distress until it is accomplished. In the words of Rabbi Duncan, it was damnation. But he took it lovingly. He loves the world so much. He's prepared to identify himself completely with it. He becomes humanity's representative. He acts for them and in their place. And he becomes our substitute, not only suffering with us, but suffering for us. And because he suffers for us, his church and his people will never suffer. will never know the experience of being forsaken and abandoned. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved us right through to the end. The story is told of an African pastor uh, who was struggling with a number of issues in his congregation. Uh, traditional African religion remained popular in his area. Some of the educated young people were flirting with Marxism. Islam <coughs> was present as a constant threat. Uh, and the Christian church was working hard to retain its position in a very challenging situation. <coughs> And as he encouraged his congregation to look to Christ and to be completely devoted to him, he told this story. He says, one night in a simple, typical African village, there was a fire in one of the small houses. It, the house was made of natural materials. It quickly burnt down. And because they were all asleep, everyone inside the hut perished in the darkness of the night. With the exception of one small boy. In the dark night, just as the fire was taking hold, an unknown member of the tribe dashed into the flames in the hut and pulled the child out to safety. And the next morning, the elders of the village met and they were discussing a problem. 
the man who had rescued the child had disappeared, and they began to discuss who should take responsibility for raising the child. Some of the wealthier members of the village thought that their wives would be best qualified because they had the resources to care for the wee boy. And the discussion continued with various claims being made about people who could adopt the child and raise the child. But finally, one man stepped into the ring of the elders and insisted that he should be given the boy. Why, they asked him. You're not wealthy, you're not important. And then he showed them his hands. They were badly burned. He had been the person who had rescued the child. What greater evidence of love and devotion for the child could they ask for than that? Who could possibly have superior claim? And as the African pastor told that story, he leaned over his pulpit and he said, I don't dispute that the old gods of our fathers had wisdom and power. And I don't dispute that Muhammad taught many great and noble things. And I don't dispute that Marxism has something to offer a colonial people like us. But, he said, I must follow Jesus because he alone has the scars on his hands because he loved us and suffered for the sake of that love. Of whom else can that be said? Who else in the whole range of human philosophy and human religion can offer themselves like that? Yes, it's possible for us to have thoughts of God that are too human. But when the Bible and John tells us that God is love, it's surely telling us that it's also possible to have thoughts of God that are not human enough. For our God, uniquely in this world of multiple faiths and many philosophies, loves and suffers because he loves. So what is the one of the key things I want to say to my 25-year-old self? God loves you far, far more than you understand. <clears throat> I have a grandchild called Arthur who's one year old. He just doesn't grasp how much I love him. Maybe one day he will. And right now, I'm like a child. I don't understand how much God loves me. But this I do understand. He died for me. And he tells me <clears throat> that nothing in this world and nothing in the world to come will be able to separate me from his love. Folks, we are so blessed, aren't we? Here's a reason to thrill our hearts tonight. God is love. God so loved this world and so loved you and me that he gave his son and then he worked in our hearts so that we're able to respond to his grace, so that we're able to come to him and in some small measure understand the huge nature of his love for us. Let's pray.
Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Thank you, Lord, for all that your word reveals to us about your amazing love for us. Our hearts are melted, Lord. Our hearts are humbled at the thought that you would love the likes of us. But you have, Lord, in all our messiness, in all our unloveliness, you have lavished your love upon us. You have brought us into your banqueting house. And your banner over us is love. Thank you, Lord, for your love. May we rest in that knowledge. May we be encouraged by that knowledge. And may we know that nothing you do in our lives will ever separate us from your wonderful love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.